The shroud of the dark age has fallen. Hunker down, buckle up, and get ready for the lengthy saga of the Merovingian Wars. This is the quest for power. Welcome back, my friends, to the Quest for Power, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. We are your favorite historical nerds, Scott and Michael, and today we are going to be navigating some pretty intense family drama through the reign of Sigebert of House Merovingian, the first of his name, King of Austrasia. Honestly, not as long of a title as we've had in some past ones, so I appreciate the brevity. Yeah, but there you go. Returning back to our regular spiel uh, with less brevity, if you are looking to have some more adventure and want to join the Lore Masters Guild, you can do so at patreon.com slash quest for power. There we have our side quest episodes to discover our people, places, factions, and things hidden in European lore, dungeons that are not in the main quest, and you get, of course, a shout out welcoming you to the guild. For the people who do not like the brevity, that is the place for you. We've had some lovely deep dives on uh, people and, pla and places, topics, so check it out. So, Scott, what have you been up to? Um, not really much of anything because holidays, so you know how it is. A lot of stuff yeah. kind of stands still. Yeah, you kind of do your... You kind of do your holidays on the after everyone else does them yeah well travel and uh i guess we'll also um i probably yeah i probably could have traveled for uh, for for christmas but it's it's such a hassle and like airline tickets are expensive so it's more yeah, of like a imagine. january or february affair just not a not a great not a great time <laughs> so <laughs> no. So I had the joys of sleeping in, that kind of thing, walking, got to, you know, get to walk around some of the, you know, nice parks around where I live. So, you know, it's, it's, it's nice enough, but I'll look forward to spending time with family sometime later. There you go. At least it's warm for you where you live to that you can walk. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's getting, it's not like. It's been like freezing, so it's not like it's a pleasant walk, but you're not freezing your butt off. <laughs> but I think it was like last weekend, it was like just about shy of 60. Today, it's like 30. It was in the 30s, 40s. So winter's finally taking its hold. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely suffering the effects of winter. My son decided to give us all RSV, so that, that was really fun. Uh, RSV. I never heard of it either, I but it hit me harder than COVID did. It's a respiratory syndical virus, I think is what it's called, something along those lines. Mm. And uh, yeah, especially one with asthma was not a fun time. I completely missed uh, Christmas Eve because I was just, I was uh, praying for the sweet release of death that never came. Yeah, I'll, it felt like everyone was getting sick. I, I heard so many stories of 
like from coworkers of like their families getting sick on like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. So everybody, yeah. everybody's getting some this season. Yeah, and uh, so and spoiler alert in our future research that we're going to run into dysentery quite a bit. So it was kind of funny. I was sick while researching dysentery and being like, well, at least we don't have to deal with that issue right now. That's right. Yeah, it can always be worse. <laughs> it really can. I, I yeah. have no desire to live in the past as much as I love studying it and learning it. I'm, I'm good right where I'm at. Yeah, nothing teaches you just how good you've got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of the past, let's get into our sources. Uh, we, of course, have, you know, Gregory of Tours. He is alive and he is active during Sigebert's reign. By active, I mean he is actually scheming. He is using his power to influence events. He is really active in terms of trying to get what he wants. Uh, Sigebert, uh, spoiler alert, Sigebert and Brunhilde are the ones to actually give him his uh, bishopric so therefore he's gonna be pretty positive on on those two as you can imagine and then also i'm using a second hand source uh called the dark queens the bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world this is an awesome book it tells the merovingian version of the dance of dragons and game of thrones i know scott you don't really know what it is but for the listeners uh i'm guessing that this war that we're about to enter inspired quite a bit of the house of dragons narrative especially between the two queens that the house of dragon is about to go through uh but regardless that book i would highly suggest check it out it is a really cool narrative i'm using quite a bit of it to forge our narrative of that war and all of the stuff that comes in it but it really focuses on the two queens aspect which is kind of unique for a history book Alrighty, and with that let's get into his reign so this episode is going to set the stage for what's to come uh caribert's episode was like a pilot to a series um i often think of it as like the phantom menace it doesn't really apply to everything else that happens but it, it, you know it's got some things in it uh no epic lightsaber fight though at the end much less cool yeah yeah and no and i and, and uh we don't have the overlay of the duel of fates so i mean that's always going to be a downgrade as well <laughs> but anyway uh this episode is going to be full of like unavoidable info dumps and it's going to continue building on in the coming episodes. You're going to need to know all this information to go forward into what is going to be a, an incredible conflict that we're going to go through. Sigurd, right. There's a quiz later. Yes, exactly. If you get it wrong here, uh, I don't know. You're banished you're, back to the episode yeah. one. Yep, you have exactly. to listen to it you're all over again. You're exiled. <laughs> he was, uh, so Sigurd is most likely the fourth child of the mighty King Clotaire and his favorite wife, Ingud. We don't know too much about his childhood. Unfortunately, his mother died when Sigurd was around 10 or 11 years old. So that's not really ideal. Uh, common in this era, though. He likely grew up in the army alongside his 
uh, fathers and brothers. So he probably was raised by good hardened warriors and kind of in that culture, but also that same culture really looked up to Rome and that's going to also influence his life later on. And when his father died in 561, all hell broke loose. Before Clotaire's body was cold and buried in the ground, Sigebert received a message that his youngest brother, Kilperic, already seized the royal treasury in Paris, or Paris, and quickly bribed the noble officials with the gold stolen from the treasury that was supposed to be divided up among the children. So, pretty blatant power grab by his uh, youngest brother. Yeah, I'm not, I've, I've re- we're not really surprised someone no. had to do this. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, I mean, that's what Cloth Chair did, so you might as well take after father, right? Mm-hmm. Someone got the, you know, genes from their father. <laughs> exactly. In a rare show of unity, Sigebert Gontron and Caribert allied together and they threw their brother out of Paris and convinced him by a show of force that maybe the empire should be divided up among into kingdoms, you know, as the law dictates. And Kilperic didn't have the forces to fight against that, so he had to acquiesce. Sigebert received the most eastern portion of the empire renamed Kingdom of Austrasia. Uh, This is in modern day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany. It's all kind of um, in modern day Northeast France, I should say. So it's really a lot of German land and Belgium is uh, where his kingdom begins in. Right away in his reign, he begins receiving reports about raids coming across into his territory from Thuringia from a fierce nomadic tribe named the Avars around 562. I know nothing about the Avars, Scott. Do you? I have no clue. I didn't know if there were in any of your, uh, um, what is that, Empire game? empire game oh oh Oh, like age of empires or age of empires civilization yeah i didn't know if there would be an age of empires or something like that or Uh, so if anything it'd be more likely it'd be like in civilization i only played like age of empires 4 which is the newest has very few civilizations however age of empires 2 is boatloads i don't think they're in it though oh okay so definitely not in civ yeah, I think we might have to do a Patreon episode on them. I think they're going to become a bigger player in the European format, but they're just a little kind of an annoyance in this episode. So because of these incursions coming into his borders, uh, his capital, his current one, Reims, is a little too close for comfort to the border. So he moves his capital from Reims to Metz. And then in the process of moving, he summons all his Frankish warriors and he forces the Avars back beyond the Rhine River. So I imagine him like pointing his finger and going, stay back there and don't come back or I'll won't be so nice next time. They draw the line in the sand or, or I guess the river rather. <laughs> yeah, the river. Yeah, the river does a nice job for you. 
It it really does. It's it's a wonderful resource to use. Well, it's no small river, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no, it is not. Uh, and just after putting the Avars in their place, one of his messengers comes bolting up to him, telling him that his problematic half-brother Kilperic seized Reims among other cities. So probably a good thing that he, you know, got the hell out of there and moved uh, his capital to Metz if his brother has already, you know, got to that city. So probably after muttering some curse words going, I really wish this man was never born, uh, <laughs> letting the men know that, hey, uh, our land is being attacked by Kilbrick. We should probably go kick his butt. And so he leads a counterattack against Kilbrick, decisively defeats him, reclaims all his lost land, and in the process captures his nephew, Prince Teutobert. Teutobert is most likely under the age of 12 and he's sent on military campaign like we would do for school. So like this is his school. So for this reason, Sigurbert didn't, you know, feel like executing him or imprisoning him for a very long time. He just said, look, I need, you have to take an oath before God and everyone that you will never attack Austrasia again. And then he sent him on his way home. How nice. Yeah. What a good uncle. He's like, yeah, I listen to you. I know your father's kind of a dickhead. It's fine. Just don't come back. According to Gregory, while in the process of building their kingdom, Sigebert scoffed that at his brothers that they were taking wives unworthy of them. Scott, they were so disgraceful that they stooped so low to marry their servants and even slaves. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems pretty part of the course for a lot of these people, apparently, but. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very good, I think we went over an in the previous episode of the kind of nuances within it, but yeah, it's kind of yeah. part of the course for the uh, Franks. I mean, and... yeah, it is pretty below most royalty. Yeah, yeah, but also Gregory needs to tell us this because he is a complete unabashed snob that grew up in a very, very high influential family and doesn't like anyone who ascends the social ladder. So that's also, he's showing his colors right off the bat with that. Gregory is right, though, that Sigurbert's brothers have entertaining love lives that often descend into all kinds of chaos, which we will go to in their episodes as a result of having multiple wives, because for some reason that breeds, I don't know, a lot of dissension and uh, anonymity between the women. Kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh most of these marriages uh, to lowborn women were indeed out of lust, but they are also for strategic reasons. So I think, I'm not sure if we went into this, but we'll go into it again for anyone who just didn't listen to those episodes. A Frankish king without a son, it's going to destabilize an entire kingdom. So this approach allows him to get a, an heir pretty quickly and automatically and get spares because you can never have enough spares, especially when the plague can come down at any moment and strike your family. Mm -hmm. 
and marriage to a hot lowborn may not give you a dowry or a strategic alliance, but it gets a, a pretty nice security mechanism. And by I mean that is the king, the king does not have a headache about trying to out strategize against his own household because, you know, you have your powerful in-laws that you can't get rid of. And you're forced to give them significant positions at court, which gives them more power. And it becomes a whole cycle of where you're screwed all because you wanted this alliance. Uh, example of this are the Lannisters and Game of Thrones and the High Towers of House of Dragon. Again, you really need to just watch Game of Thrones or read, read it. Maybe that. Yeah. <laughs> Then you'll get the, or get a crash course on it, and that way you'll understand the references. Look at the spark notes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So a king will uh, avoid being locked to an unfavorable alliance since any of his wives and their children, since they're lowborn, they have no, you know, powerful influence that they can lean on. They got no alliances. They can be easily repudiated without significant re repercussions if a situation arose uh, if a situation arose like for an example if one of your sons is just getting a little out of hand you could just say look you're not really my son and it doesn't hurt anything in fact it'll take out that threat or if one of your wives is causing problems you can go yeah i don't really want you anymore and you can just kind of kick them to the curb strategically it makes a lot of sense obviously personally it's kind of horrific to think about they they're at the mercy that much but that's what that system gets you sigurbert though took an entirely different strategy than the rest of his family he does not appear to have any sexual dalliances before his first wife and if he did he was extremely discreet about it there is nothing normally when there's you know little rumors or anything like that um be that we would like figure out it by now. And the reason we can kind of believe this is because there were actually rumors going around that Sigurbert didn't like women. And obviously that's not good for a Frankish king. So he's not going to take that risk, you know, unless he's got a bigger strategy at play. At play. Yeah, he's <laughs> shortly after caves and marries. I heard this guy doesn't like women. And just immediately <laughs> yeah. snap marries his uh his bedchamber slave or something <laughs> yeah good cover yeah uh what sigbert was doing is he's actually strategy he is actually taking up the strategy of stylizing himself as like a very competent imperial roman statesman so to cement this image he needs a wife that would be worthy of a roman empress to really put the family together and make it seem like a powerful royal family. And he heard of a beautiful, elegant, and intelligent 18-year-old Visigothic princess named Brunhilda, who is the daughter of the Spanish Visigothic king, Athanagild. So we're back with the Visigoths again. The Franks can never get away from them. It came full circle. At least they're marrying into it this time and not attacking them. So that's always nice. Uh, after sending some gifts to Athanagild and engaging in several negotiations, an accord was reached. An Austrasian Visigothic alliance was forged from the marriage between Athanagild's youngest daughter, Brunhilde, 
and our very own Sigebert the first. His chat, his perplexing chastity actually paid off. It's a huge win for Sigebert. The Visigothic king previously turned down other suitors looking for a match because he wanted a partnership with an equally powerful royal family. So that just tells you how much his stature raised just by not sleeping around with um, slaves and <laughs> concubines and mistresses. Very, yeah, it just has a very Christian very yes exactly a very christian outlook uh their children too will have very powerful royal blood from both parents so this sets them up to be like the true heirs of the whole frankish empire it is a significant move to make in the game of thrones against his brothers a really damn good one too and it took a lot of patience to pull off like he had to deal with rumors of hey he doesn't like women maybe <laughs> Yeah, that's, and, a, that's and, a tough one to stomach back in the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially in that hearted warrior culture. Like, oh, can you imagine the shit he'd be given in between battles and things like that? Like, oh, why aren't you sleeping with anyone? Gotta save myself for the Lord. Exactly. To really drive the point home of his imperial stature is he declared the marriage to be a Caesar's marriage short little history lesson caesar became the name towards the end of the empire where it was more than a name it was a position and it really meant heir to the empire so by sigurbert calling his wedding the caesar's wedding he was essentially declaring himself the rightful successor to rome above everyone else including his brothers not so, to ruffle some feathers. It, it might ruffle just a little bit of feather. So I'm not sure it's the smartest of moves, but it's one bold move, and it's a fantastic maneuver to grab a lot of power and a lot of stature and influence without violence. He didn't do anything. <laughs> so at the wedding, what you would be seeing, because we got some some uh imagery from this from the people at the time is that you would actually see these tough frankish warriors with you know tattoos all over themselves just real built men and they'd be cosplaying as like roman nobles which would be kind of a funny sight to see it kind of awkward <laughs> just a little just, bit i mean especially because like well uh, what how long has it been since like I don't know, since like Rome to the point where like, you know, Roman, Rome is, I don't want to say fallen because it's such a bad word, but you know what I mean? Like it's been yeah. sacked several yeah. times. And like, I think it's safe to say that Rome probably was not, it's a shadow of its former self. Oh yeah. Rome and culturally, Rome. I'm sure a lot of that is gone, right? Like culturally, a lot of the old ways I'm sure have been kind of, it's kind I of a bizarre say... like showing basically it just feels like us going to renaissance festivals obviously less far removed more like actually it'd be more like us cosplaying as our grandparents <laughs> like you know <laughs> what i mean like like everyone just gets into a party and be like hey let's have like a 1940s or 1950s party which feels really 
yeah. bizarre. But at yeah. a wedding, a 1950s wedding. And it's a power move. Like, that's a move. Yes. That's what this is it, considered it is. a flex. Yeah, it's 1950s. considered a flex. Yeah. And Which, that's. I mean, yeah, that's about the time, yeah, because it fell in 476. So, I mean, it fell, quotation marks. We're going to yeah. go through that quite a bit. Obviously, I mean, there's still the. That's even more weird part is like, they, you know, Rome's still there. People still live there. Yeah. And Rome is still in the minds of these people, but it's crazy because it's been gone for so long, but yet it's, it has such a hold on the mind of everyone that they're still obsessing over this. And it's still the root of power in, our, in this region, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. That, yeah. It's just really funny but i mean we see people change the names of stadiums and they still call it the old name so it, it's got that same energy <laughs> i mean i was gonna say at the same time we are obsessed with our country as what would the founding fathers have done and that yeah, was yeah. well over a hundred years ago so that's kind of the same thing maybe not the best of you know analogies but to me that's kind of what it feels like is you know well, you know, it was an entirely different world back then. They'll do a 1700s wedding for the, for the power move. <laughs> yeah, for the power move. Could you yeah. imagine a president doing that and it's like a, a, a way to get him elected? Oh, or like, or at the very least, like in an election year, right? Like, let's yeah. say in an election year, they get married and they're like, this is a presidential, this is a Washington wedding. <laughs> yeah, that would could you imagine just the <laughs> shit show? Oh my god, that would be awesome. That I would, yeah. I would, I would love to see that. Oh my god, the media would have I'm, a field day. Yeah, that news coverage would just be. <laughs> oh god, yeah. That... I don't, I don't watch the news too much, but I definitely would watch it for that. That would be, oh, that'd be great. Well, it's like the net and like every, you know, everyone and their mother on social media also oh. covering it oh my god the memes would be fantastic that's true uh yeah it would just make me sad if someone did that <laughs> i'd just be like united states is dead <laughs> we're scrap so... it <laughs> even though we're so young yet uh, well times move faster anyways i digress all right this is bizarre <laughs> <laughs> exactly well, also at this wedding uh, was a poet named Fornatus. And Fornatus has been looking to make a name for himself. And he's really needs to nail what's called a panegyric for the royal couple special day. Have we discussed what a panegyric is on the main episode? I know we have yes. on other episodes. Okay. This is at least our second on the main, third, at least third in total. Okay. All right. So for those who need a quick refresher, Panegyric is basically saying how you are the greatest of the great. It's like a huge brown nosing poem. And it really, the thing about panegyrics is they give us a picture of what the people wanted to portray themselves as. But in particular, this panegyric actually gives us like a picture of the wedding, which we did not have since episode two, which was Atolf. We didn't get any descriptions of weddings before then, before we just got, after that, every time we've just gotten, yeah, they got married. So 
Vernatis describes this blushing bride as a glorious maiden with milk-white complexion and lips the color of roses, a jewel beyond comparison. He went even further and called her a second Venus. I, I really love how we're in the middle of a solemn Christian ceremony and a pagan god is being brought into it. Well, it's kind of like it, to compare someone to like Christian God would be blasphemy. That is that is true. So, and we don't really like Christian God is not exactly the God of beauty per se. It's the God of everything. So you can't real. it doesn't really have the same impact as being like, Hey, this, this deity that specializes in beauty. Yeah. She's it. <laughs> so I get it. But after this, not after sacrilegious. How, I was going to say, after how nuts they are on taking the pagans down, it's just kind of funny to me that they bring the gods. I would think you would they would try and erase them, but apparently not. Yeah. Well, again, they're having a Roman wedding, a Caesar's wedding. That is true. That is they're very definite, true. They're, yeah, you're, they're going to be stuck. I mean, shoot. The fact that we know who Venus is at least in loose terms, says an awful lot about the, the staying power of the yes, culture. So definitely they're All in right. the thick of it. So upon looking at her the first time, Sigurbert was quite pleased by the look of his new life partner as he welcomed her into the kingdom. And by all accounts, she looked a bit relieved that he was actually good looking himself. There is actually quite some credibility that this royal couple was probably how Hollywood would present a hot young king and queen, since even their enemies, with all the criticisms and the jabs that they take at them, they never once jab at them for their looks. Good for so. them. You know, I can imagine that though for a eighteen-year-old girl, like being shipped off to a foreign land. Like, please let the husband not be ugly. Please let him not be ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and then Frunatus boldly declares that Sigurbert is already in love, and he is consumed by passion for Brunhilda even though he literally just met her and everyone present was aware of the time spent in negotiations to make this day happen. Like it was a cold thing. No, there was no passion involved in it. No, just head over heels. Exactly. <laughs> he really just starry. Love at first sight. Yeah. And uh, we are told that they had a grand feast as he took her as his wife and queen among amid great mirth and joy there's no assassination at the feast got so we had a feast and no assassinations happen miracles happen on this podcast every once in a while every once in a while so that's it's a huge plus let's see how it bodes for their marriage so there's a tradition with the merovingians and other germanic kingdoms that the bride is given a morangabe do you know what a Morangabe is? Uh, I am not familiar. Okay, so it's also known as a morning gift. After the couple have sex for the first time, consummating their marriage, their gift is then, after that happens, the husband then gives the wife a gift. 
And the gift is actually considered their actual property. It is the wife's property. It is not just part of the couple's joint assets. It's not part of the kingdom. It is hers. So Sigebert gives his new bride a lavish estate in southern France called Tribonum. And this is considered an extremely nice morning gift, since usually morning gifts are just jewels, clothing, small treasure items. But he went all out. And this is another subtle move to demonstrate his imperial power by raising his wife's status even more. So you can kind of see he's really playing his cards. He's sticking to one strategy and he's hitting it hard. Yeah, I guess so. Either that or he's just a different, just a different kind of guy. You know, that, that also could be true. There's one big issue though with their marriage that needed to be sorted out before children came along. Can you guess what this issue would be? She's a Visigoth. Oh, we got a converter. Yes, she is a misguided, heretical Aryan that could doom the kingdom with her beliefs. I mean, she has the audacity to believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are separate entities and not just one. And I know, Scott, that you're probably very worried about this and very concerned, but don't worry. There are several bishops, and even the king himself educated her on the error of her ways. I'm sure she was happy to convert exactly she saw the light she realized how wrong she was got down on her knees and begged for god's forgiveness and confessed that god jesus and the holy ghost are one entity and with that she was born again all sin is wiped away as a catholic and she is welcomed in the arms of the true faith so well done Good job. Shortly after their wedding, Sigebert's spies let him know that his brother Kilbrick was a little unhinged about learning about the marriage and how outplayed he was. Little aside, Kilbrick in my research, at least in from what I've seen, he reminds me of Anakin Skywalker. He's impulsive, he's incapable of controlling his emotions, and he seems very easily manipulated. So he's going to be a fun one to watch. I would not go so far as that he's the chosen one, though. That I would not do. Around 567, news traveled to Sigurbert that his excommunicated brother Caribert died of what seemed like a heart attack. So the question arose, what to do with an excommunicated king's body? We've never had this issue. Um... So they had to figure this out. But to be honest, Sigurbert really didn't give a damn about his brother's body. He was more concerned about what would happen to his brother's lands, the treasury, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Someone's got to take it. Yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, oh, I forgot about the body. Yeah. Yep. You just burn it or something. I don't know. They ended up sending it off to some old Roman fort. Interesting. That's what we know of it. Because he, he's damned to hell. He's not allowed to be buried in the church. Let's well, say he just burn it but, or <laughs> throw, it him a, throw him in a ditch. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's... Yeah, the, the body is inconsequential here, but 
I'd imagine it's almost a free-for-all for the land. Someone's <laughs> got to come and grab this. Yeah, especially with his uh, brother Kilpric, who's always trying to do crap like that. But in addition to the land, the king had a lawful widow named Theudekild. Theudekild. Now, queens couldn't summon forces, they couldn't declare war, but they had access to the royal treasury, which was close to the king's bedchamber, and an ambitious queen could use that money in the treasury to help her stay in power. So, Sigebert's father, Clothter, if you remember, would have just marched in there with his forces, and he would have just married the widowed queen immediately. But Sigebert's imperial strategy meant he couldn't exactly do that without jeopardizing his carefully crafted image that he spent so long creating well also isn't that against the church too it's incest. yeah yeah it is it is incest that didn't stop See? his father but well we're better than that now yeah we've yes. learned and uh thankfully his holier than thou brother king gontran tricked Theodekild, stole all her gold, and sent her to a convent, so that threat was neutralized immediately without Sigebert having to do anything. <laughs> yeah, he didn't get the royal treasury, but at least the threat was dealt with. So, what about all the land? As you can imagine, uh, the three remaining brothers, they had to get together, despite their very dislike for each other, and sort out you know where his land goes and so but first they gotta make sure that all of his uh daughters are forced into convents so they also don't get any funny ideas like they would have killed before that so then after that they decided all right here's the land and they split it up and said good enough for now The brothers also discussed what to do with their illegitimate brother named Gundelwald that could lay claim to Carabert's kingdom. Do you remember Gundelwald from last episode in Carabert's reign? No, not a bit. <laughs> it was clearly forgettable. Uh, Gundelwald was a royal prince in his childhood, but for some unknown reason, their father, Clotaire, publicly repudiated him and forced him to cut his hair. So up to this point, Gundevald was just chilling in Carabert's court, although he met, uh, visited a lot of his other brothers' courts as well. And he was currently at Sigebert's court at the time of Carabert's death. So his brothers even let him get his royal status back by letting him growing out his hair. But they did not give him any land. They weren't that none of that funny business. And uh, since they didn't want to share any more of his land, they had to publicly humiliate him by shearing off his hair, which disqualified him. And then they sent him away to a Frankish outpost in Cologne. So that threat is also dealt with. And now the land has been divided amongst themselves. But a deadlock ensued over who would get which is the heart of the Frankish kingdoms. It was Clovis's capital. It was Clotaire's capital. It is the capital whenever Frank Frankia is united. 
The solution they came with was an unusual one. I've never heard of this one before. None of the brothers could enter the city without express permiss- uh, without express permission written by the other two brothers and that the tax revenue from the city would be split three different ways. Have you ever heard of that before? I've not. Well, the kind of the neutral city uh, feels familiar in some ways, although I couldn't tell you from where. I feel like it would be in fantasy, but I've never really seen it, I don't think, in history of a neutral city amongst things. Three warring factions or three... Yeah. Not warring, but antagonistic factions. Yeah, I don't know. It, it made me also... In my first, I was also like, oh, we're just going to split it. You know, be like East and West Berlin. Oh, Which, yeah. That's another bizarre relationship when you've got a city in the middle of different territory but exactly anyways um yeah it, it probably was like a thing i saw in like fantasy or something but a lot of this a lot of this stuff i would used to read was based off of real life anyways like i've had several i've read at least multiple books when i was like yeah teenager late teenager that both conveniently had like the invention of a uh, like arrowhead forceps basically where you could grab an arrowhead from the inside and pull it out say that again so you could so you could grab an arrow so and so the 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 tail or the story of basically an arrowhead breaks off in someone's face okay and because and you can't just yank right like you gotta yeah, be correct. pretty precise about this thing. You gotta be very, pre you gotta basically have the arrow come out exactly the same way it came in. Yeah. Otherwise you're causing a lot of damage. So there's the ingenious idea of basically grabbing, basically making a reverse set of pliers where you insert into the arrowhead and then expand it out to grip the arrowhead from the inside. Holy crap. And then I've read two books and then I saw like a TikTok about it sometime that this actually happened to in like an English king. That's funny. Like I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I read just oddly enough. So fan most fantasy artists, fantasy medieval type oh, uh, yeah, yeah. writers, I mean, lovingly rip off of uh rip off of history pretty darn on the nose sometimes. So it it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprised me if I read something about the neutral city and it was based entirely off of Paris being or Paris. I could being, see that. That'd be funny. Yeah. Authors oh, yeah. lovingly rip off. It's fun. I mean, it's uh, so, history just writes sometimes better narratives that we can come up with on our own. <laughs> More unbelievable yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, truth is stranger than fiction. It's like my favorite saying. Back on topic, Sigurbert had the most leverage over the other two due to his rising status in the international community amongst the Frank and among the Frankish Empire as a whole. So he claimed two powerful and wealthy cities, Tours and Poitiers, uh, Poitier, uh, in the land surrounding them, which was ironically right in the middle of the territory to go to that was going to go to Kilperic. And that would really irritate the hell out of Kilbrick. This is exactly like you were talking about Berlin. So 
he had the cities, but Kilbrick had like the land surrounding it. It sounds like a hassle. Like yeah. Although it's a great if you want to, you know, be war hungry, it's a great pretense for you to go and liberate your cities. Yes, it definitely is. And Kilperic got even more angry when he realized that uh, part of the deal, his domain is going to be split apart instead of connected. Since Sigurbert and Guntram, Guntran really did not want him gaining too much power. You know, because they kind of still held a grudge from when he tried to steal the whole empire. You know, <laughs> kind of a thing. Understandable. And uh, so... Sigurbert also had even more of a grudge to hold because Kilbrick already had invaded him in the past and he already wasn't the biggest fan. So after everything is all hammered out, here is how the map looks. We'll have this in our social media uh, post for this episode. It would be a lot easier for me to just show than explain a poorly paint, uh, poorly made paint by numbers uh, map that the Merovingians have going on. But Scott, do you want to try and explain the mess we're looking at? Uh, it looks like a modern day gerrymandering map. I have to zoom in. This thing is. Uh... All right. Yeah, this is pretty messed up. So if I had to describe this in a rough terms, it's nobody has any, and I'd say nobody, most people involved uh, Kilperic, Sigurbert, and Gundrum. Mo pretty much none of their territory really connects in any meaningful way. So in order for you to get to one place, you have to cross through at least one or two people's other territories. And this is supposed to make sense. Yep, exactly. I mean, yeah, this just feels like ways for you to just lose your territory. But I bet there's some balance in it because if you have your most powerful cities and enemy territory, which I know is kind of like a big miss. But if you go taking someone else's territory, well, then your territory is also surrounded by someone else's territory. So it's kind of like everyone's got nukes aimed at each other. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yep. Yeah, poor, yeah, poor Guntram just sitting in the middle. <laughs> yeah. He's surrounded in the by of this mess. Surrounded by everybody. And not only just surrounded by everybody, but still somehow has some of the most largest like foreign borders because he has the entire central and eastern side of France. Yeah, this is kind yeah. of a mess. He's got to deal with uh, Lombards over to the east. Yeah, like he's got to deal with foreign people. And then also he's sandwiched between sigabert's massive shares of land and then yeah i guess then there, there's kilperic who just gets the coastal english channel and he just gets all the coastal stuff except probably the less good coastal stuff like he gets all the coastal holdings that probably don't matter as much exactly the ones that go oh, to bordeaux, Britain, bordeaux which don't nice. really matter what's that yeah bordeaux looks bordeaux looks nice yeah is yeah, that that's a that's a pretty established city by now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at inlets, you know? Like 
you know, where are all the inlets at? Because it's usually going to be your protected waters that, you know, you can do more stuff with. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. I, yeah. It, re- it really looks like Kilprick made out. I'm sorry, not Kilprick. Um, but I bet uh, Sigabert made out pretty nicely, all things considered. Exactly. Yeah. So it was also around this time that the Imperial couple Sigebert and Brunhilde welcomed a baby girl named after Sigebert's mother, who they named Ingud. And despite Ingud not being a baby boy, Sigebert still threw massive celebrations in honor of his new princess. So, you know, good for him. Uh... Despite those celebrations going on, it did not take long for his brother Kilperic to voice his displeasure with how Caribert's land was split up. And he received urgent news that his nephew, Teutobert, who swore in front of God and everybody that he would never tack again, took over Sigebert's new cities, Tours, and Potier immediately. Should have just killed the kid. <laughs> honestly uh sigbert made a very easily took a major counteroffensive reclaimed his lost territory and he dealt kilperic another blow to his ego and power uh theodobert was able to get out of there though before i think he uh before sigbert completely took over mm Sigebert's spies at Kilperic's court then informed him that Kilperic somehow got the hand of Brunhilda's older sister, Galswintha. So apparently in order to do this, he had to repudiate all wives, concubines, and mistresses, especially his favorite wife or mistress, Fredegund, who this request was directly aimed at. The reason for this is the Visigoths are not into the whole mistresses thing, and they're very, very against it. So they said, if you're going to marry my daughter, you have to get rid of everyone. And it was quite well known that he was sleeping around with Fredegund and how much he enjoyed Fredegund. And also, for some reason, Kilprick gave his new bride a ridiculous, ridiculous Morangabe, which was a third of his entire kingdom. To give you some perspective on how ridiculous this is, Sigbert gave Brunhilde a very nice Morangabe, and he treats her like an empress, and he she just got a very luxurious estate. Galswintha got a third of the kingdom. Yeah. I don't know... But- it's like I don't know what what that does, you know. It's like how many rights does she have, right? Uh she has rights over those because they were given to her. And more importantly, it would be rights to the Visigoths as well, because they would be her next of kin if something were to happen. Sigebert didn't mm. really react to this move by Kilbrick, but he just took note of him making moves to boost his status. It's essentially Kilbrick is trying to get is is engaging Sigebert in a dick measuring contest is what he's trying to do. Saying I yeah. have more power than you. 
Yeah, I picked up on that much. Although <laughs> there does come a point where it just becomes stupid, right? It's like keeping yes. up with the Joneses. Like exactly. There comes a yep. point where you're just overextending yourself for nothing. Yeah, Sigurbert, he he was like, whatever, little bro. Uh, he started instead building a slew of building projects and began transforming his new capital, Metz, into a symbol of imperial power. He began consolidating power and securing his borders. He no longer needed to worry about the Visigoths in Spain due to his marriage and the fact that he beat the living daylights out of the Avers meant that they were going to really reconsider if they were ever going to invade Austrasia again. And then he was just kind of keeping an eye on his brothers, especially Kilperic, but he couldn't really do anything other than monitor the situation. Kilperic wasn't doing anything to antagonize him. Sounds pretty stable. But the Italian border was starting to concern him. It was absolute chaos down there. The Italian peninsula has been through the ringer in the Gothic Wars, which you should, uh, if you don't know anything about those, you should see our episodes 18 through 24 if you want to see those in detail. Italy got completely ravaged. And the Romans held it for a hot minute after they destroyed the Ostrogoths, but then this new group of people rumored from Scandinavia called the Lombards conquered most of Italy and pushed the Romans out. And now the Lombards were starting to push north to Austrasia. So that's kind of a problem. And then out of nowhere, while he's worrying about that, a uh, message appeared from one of Sigebert's and Brunhilde's spies that would change everything. I doubt this messenger had any idea he carried a message so dangerous that it would trigger a multi-generational, deeply personal, hellacious civil war that lasts over 40 years, ravages the Frankish landscape, sparks the beginning of the end for the Merovingian dynasty, and slaughters over 12 monarchs in the carnage that is about to unfold. So Sigebert, not thinking too much, opened up the seal and read, Brunhilda's sister Galswintha, the wife of Kilpric, was found dead in her bed. It appears she was strangled in the middle of the night. That wasn't all. Here's the kicker. Days later, Kilpric married his favorite slave Fredegund and made her queen consort. I think you can read between the lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, unfortunately, he had to break news to his queen, who was probably absolutely devastated. Her tears... After her tears stopped, her entire demeanor would have turned to pure rage and hatred, fire in her eyes, and she'd demand that Sigurbert go kill his piece of shit brother and send him on a fast pass to hell. We have no idea how Sigurbert felt about this. Even if he wanted to defend his wife's honor and to be her weapon of vengeance, he couldn't just attack Kilperic without the backing of at least the nobility in his court. It is now we have to delve into his court, and there are three main factions at this point. One faction wanted a close alliance with the Eastern Roman Empire. One faction wanted 
Austrasia and Sigebert's older brother Gontran to unite and depose Kilperic. And the third faction wanted better relations between Austrasia and Kilperic's kingdom, Neustria. Got all that? Uh, kind of. All right. So we'll start with the first faction that wanted an alliance with the Eastern Roman Empire. The faction's leader was a man named Duke Guntram Boso. And it was more of a faction of Boso because not because of ideological reasons that this was for the Eastern Roman Empire is more because Boso liked the glamour and the opulence that was associated with the Eastern Romans. Boso is one hell of a character. I think we're going to have to end up doing a Patreon episode on him. He had this fighter jet pilot swagger. Think Tom Cruise, Top Gun. He had that once in a generation raw athletic prowess. This man was a master swordsman. On horseback, he could cut down multiple units with ease. Women threw themselves at him and men got out of his way. He was pretty much a... So saith the bards. Exactly. He was pretty much a demigod to these good Christians. And Disney reference for my wife, this man is the essence of Gaston, is the song that came in my head. That's right. No one one kills like Gaston. Exactly. Uh, The problem was, was Bolso knew it. He was cocky, he was brash, and he had no problem telling you what he thought, even if you were the king. And the reason he got away with it is because the king and the nobility wanted him on their side. (laughs) So that's one faction, if you call it that. A second faction wanted Austrasia, the second one that wanted Austrasia and Sigebert's older brother, Gontran, to unite and just get rid of this Kilbrick. This was fa- uh, headed by a Count Gogo, which, great name, who was an accomplished diplomat, and he also helped Sigebert negotiate for Brunhilde's hand. Uh, he got the title Mayor of the Palace, which is one of the king's top advisors, uh might not be anything now uh it's just a position at court but you're going to want to remember that title as we continue the merovingian dynasty off the top of your head scott do you know why the mayor of the palace becomes important no <laughs> it took me okay a to like we'll let that re- we'll let that uh, remain a mystery then uh count gogo was joined by a member of the old roman aristocracy named dynamis Dimeus? I'm going to go with Dimeus. The poet uh, Fortunatus and our main bishop Gregory of Tours. So he's in this dogfight as well. And he's friends with Fortunatus an accomplished warrior named Duke Wolf. Another that's a great, fun name. That's a great yeah, name. That's a, yeah. That's a fantasy name right there. Yeah, well... <laughs> I mean, it's not that far. I've met like people with last name Wolf. Oh yeah, that's true. I know it's not that much of a stretch. It's just like it's got a it's got a ring to it, you know. It it definitely does. Wolf Wolf is fierce, and obviously the Duke the Duke of Wolves. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously this last faction wanted the exact opposite of our second faction. Uh, This faction was led by the Bishop Aegidius of Reims, and he was Duke Wolf's arch nemesis because of their family connections. 
And for him, a war between the two kingdoms would be especially bad for Aegeus because his land would be right in the thick of it and probably would be ravaged by both sides. And also, it would be quite the accomplishment as a holy man to reconcile two rival kings, brothers no less, and avoid war. Like, that'd be a huge knock in his way to heaven. This faction also consisted of Franks that were not thrilled with Sigebert's romanticization of their Frankish empire. Uh, a particular duke named Duke Ursio, uh, he loved conquering and pillaging by like the rest of them, but he wasn't a fan of Frank-on-Frank violence. And he hated outsiders, and he rallied against foreign alliances and he distrusted foreign princesses so obviously he's against uh brunhilda and he had a loyal sidekick named duke berthfred berthethred berthethred whatever i don't think we use him anymore so we can just continue on so with all that knowledge, Sigebert's called for a king's council to discuss what should the kingdom of Austrasia's response be to Kilbrick's blatant murder of his sister-in-law. And before the meeting even took place, Gogo, the pro-war faction, would have been whispering sweet nothings to the ear of Boso about the glories and the wealth he could achieve if they were to go to war against Neustria. So as a result... The king and during the king's council, Bolso would not show opposition to the motion to go kick Kilbrick's ass and bring war to his people, his kingdom, and show him it's not nice to go killing your wife. Yeah, this so, is a really big. This is a. I mean, I know obviously this is really sad, but this is a really big deal over what arguably is happening just within their own borders exactly it's ridiculous you know, it's his wife not not to say that he should go killing his spouses but you know it's not like he went and invaded somebody or killed yes, someone else's but he killed other. his wife's sister which and i'm that surprised that he you know that this still feels like the biggest stink made over a a wife's family member getting wronged because this isn't yeah. the first time it's happened this is just no. the biggest stink no and all of this happened just because kilbrick felt the need to get in a dick measuring contest with sigivert he could have been fine with his you know his other marriages but because of that it portray it, it like kind of leads this domino effect to this massive war but i agree it's amazing how this it's a little spark that let the powder keg Basically, this is the, you know, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, essentially. Yeah, it checks out. So, he had enough support to go to war. He had, despite having the support of the nobility, Sigebert and his court needed to pave way to portray a just war, to not just their soldiers to their people but to outside influence as well so they don't go meddling in or if they go meddling in it's not to help Kilbrick out and since Brunhilde's body was already being used politically from the start of their marriage now they're just going to use her grief to their advantage 
they contracted the poet Fortunatus to write her sister's eulogy and to publicly lament the wrong done to her sister. And Fortunatus rolled a nat 20 on this performance check. It will be one of the longest poems he would write in his illustrious career. He portrays the marriage between Galswintha and Kilbrick as doomed from the start. He claims that Galswintha was shaking in fear when she learned that she would be wedded to the faithless monster and that all of Spain mourned her leaving. And they mourned so much that they would create rivers from their tears. Upon hearing about the death of their oldest daughter, the Queen of Spain would collapse in distress, her knees giving away. He talks about how the Queen's despair transforms into rage and made a warning that the entire Frankish Empire, so this was to Sigurbert and to Gontron, was just as vulnerable to retaliation from a competent Spain. And then... He goes on to talk about some miracle after her death, clearly demonstrating that Galswintha was an innocent saint. He then really pressed and talked about how the Franks were not only vulnerable to piss off the Visigoths, not the Minigoths, the Visigoths, but to bring down the wrath of God himself onto the Franks if they did not seek justice. So not only are you now getting <laughs> your entire kingdom yeah. involved in this, you're bringing God in this, and now this is a holy war. Yeah. You know, the small things. So the eulogy did its job. In 570, a court convened to put Kilbrick on trial for the murder of Galswintha. Guntron, Guntron, his spelling, his name is labeled as Guntram, but it's really Gontron, so... Bear with me as I get through his name. Uh, he is the eldest Merovingian brother, and because of that, he became the judge for the tr this trial with Austrasian and Burgundian nobles as members of the jury. So already not very, you know... Stacked. Yeah. <laughs> stacked stacked yeah. judge and jury. And in the background of all of this, Brunhilde just gave birth to a boy on Easter Sunday, and this is considered a good omen. And they named their firstborn Kildebert after Sigebert's uncle, who we covered all the way back in episode 32. So not too far ago, mm -hmm. three episodes ago. Yeah. And the birth could not have come at a better time. Timing is everything, especially in history. It secures the succession of a potentially volatile Austrasian court that we just described before, which would increase stability within his own domain. Galswintha's Morgangabe was the ridiculous gift of a third of Kilbrick's kingdom because he wanted to abstain his brother. Upon Galswintha's death, the Morgangabe would technically transfer her to her family, which would have been Spain. So that means Spain would have just gotten a third of Kilbrick's kingdom. And Sigebert and his brother Gontron didn't really want the Visigoths to acquire a third of Neustria's Frankish lands because of their idiot brother. So this was another reason that it was good that they had an heir. Uh, however, they could argue that Galswintha's heir was Brunhilda, and especially because she has a male heir of her, her own 
and two healthy children survived childbirth with more kids expected in the future. So that means that this Morgan Gabe could remain in Frankish hands if Brunhilde were to receive favorable judgment in this trial. Mm, yeah. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah, no, no political repercussions at all here. And that's it's... definitely not going to be considered when they make a judgment on guilty or innocent. Yep. So everyone arrived at the trial and they all just kind of sat there and they waited and they waited some more and they ended up waiting a really long time. And someone probably just said, get on with it. Kilprick never showed up. Kind of expected. That sounds about right. That's about what I was expecting. Yeah. In his absence, he was obviously declared guilty of murdering his own wife in cold blood. Gontran and Sigurbert now had their pretext for war. They immediately went after Galswintha's Morgan Gabe, so they quickly grab up these cities so that way it won't fall to Spain because they can say, no, we already got it. We already reconquered it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's ours now. Yeah. And then one day, Sigurbert heard news that apparently Gontran no no longer wanted to be his ally. And Sigurbert went, why? Are you you sure you don't want to be on my team right now? We're doing quite well. And uh, to further demonstrate his what he's he's talking about he he acquired fierce germanic pagan warriors by whispering sweet nothings into their ear about all the pillaging they could do and stationed them right on gontran's border so he just got a bunch of fierce warriors and went you sure you don't want to be on my team (laughs) gontran immediately sent emissaries to sigurbert with his deepest apologies and he didn't mean to break the alliance it just sort of happened can we be friends again yuck uh yeah i would not want to be friends with this guy no 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 so reunited and now the addition of pagan raiders the brothers quickly forced kilperic to retreat his territory kept shrinking as the months ticked by eventually sigurbert's forces started entering fields of ash and the burning remains of towns and cities so this told Sigurbert and Gontran that Kilperic was getting quite desperate. He was clearly using scorched earth tactics on his own lands and people. So he's got him right where he wants him. Also horrific for the peasantry that had nothing to do with this. Yeah, yeah. Goes without saying. Yeah. By 575, the fighting began appearing near, near Kilperic's capital, Soissan. Sigurbert's spies let him know that Kilbrick grabbed his family and fled. In the fighting being led by the demigod Duke Boso, his army just kept plowing through Kilbrick's resistance like butter. And it was so, just such a steamroll that he was way ahead of Sigurbert's own army. And they were so dominant during this entire affair that Sigurbert sent for Brunhilde and the children so that the family can make their very triumphant entrance to Clovis's capital, Paris. 
you know, the one where all the brothers had to agree in order to enter. Yeah. So Did we get written permission. <laughs> I doubt it. This had major symbolism for Sigebert and Brunhilde that they seized the historic city for their imperial ambitions and their children walking along beside them signified a new imperial dynasty. So Sigebert settled into Paris with his family. He got appointed, our, and then he went to appoint our main source for the Merovingians, Gregory, to become Bishop of Tours. So after all the talk of Bishop of Gregory, this is how it starts. Now this was... The origin story. It is the origin story. This is no small appointment. The Bishop of Tours had a ridiculous amount of power. It was second to the king. And especially once he starts throwing the whole God in there and wielding that against those he opposes... He's got some significant backing. Uh, Gregory had some ambition. Uh, ha, no, Gregory had some opposition, but Brunhilde and Sigebert's support allowed him to become the bishop of the esteemed city. So it wasn't without them that he would not have gotten this. While holding court one day, a delegation of Kilbrick's nobles from his most most northern territories appeared right before him they said look kilpric sucks where we offer to abandon him and swear allegiance to you as our rightful king of course sigebert accepted so this gave sigebert some more firepower to really bring the justice to kilpric he received word that kilpric was holed up with his family in Turni, which was the birthplace of Clovis. On top of that, it was a settlement that had pretty strong walls and was built for a siege. So once he was about 40 miles outside of Turni, Sigurbert stopped at one of Kilperic's royal villas near Vitry and Artois, and their celebrations erupted over the new king. Throngs of Kilperic's troops were waving the white flag of surrender. Sigebert was raised on his shield as is custom of declaring a king. The soldiers banged their shields with the flat of their swords and chanted Sigebert, king of the Franks, long live the king. Of course, that all happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine it, you know, just like this really very movie-esque oh, scene. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the throngs of troops. You know, he arrives and there are these throngs of troops, just everyone's just cheering and waving. Everyone's, you know, poking their head out of their tents. Yep, and, exactly. Uh, yep, and then everyone, yep, they hoist him on his shield and he's practically bouncing and crowd surfing as throngs <laughs> of, yes. of soldiers are, you know, waving their hands. Yep, exactly. You could see the movie just clear now. as day. Yep. And then, yep, and yep, Kilprick is just sitting up in the in hold up on the walls, just waving his fist angrily. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Sigebert. Yes, that's funny. That's great. And uh, while this is going on, two inconspicuous boys asked to speak with the king about something. They got close. Uh, once they got close to the king, so he could hear what they had to say, they unsheathed their knives and stabbed Sigebert right in front of his king's guard. The two boys were quickly killed, but the daggers were laced with poison, and within minutes, Sigebert of House Merovingian, the first of his name, 
king of Austrasia, king of Neustria, lay dead. In the epic epilogue scene of our movie, Kilpric ironically buries Sigebert with all respect and full honor next to their father, Clotaire I. His five-year-old son, Kildebert II, is crowned king of Austrasia in the capital, Metz. And the credits roll. All right. Got anything else? No. All right. Let's move on to the 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 ranking and reviewing. There you go. Royal power. All right. So based on that lengthy narrative, how long do you think his reign was? Oh, it's a tough one. Uh, well, I want to give him like a good like. 30 years <laughs> cut that in half he reigned from 561 to 575 so around 14 years he did Never all that can tell with these yeah it's kind of hard uh his reign is a really interesting one to rate for us he made all the right moves he had a strategy for acquiring power stuck to it executed it almost flawlessly but he was just cut short before he could take the next step from being a king to an emperor and history be completely rewritten. Kilpunk got freaking lucky here. Like he was dead to rights. Sigurbert did a lot of things right. I mean, Kilpunk still lost all like a lot of land and stuff, right? Or is he, he lost everything. He's the only territory he's got is Turni right now. That's as I understood it. So, I mean, he basically took everything and like Kilpricks at this point, probably more or less reduced to nothing. Yeah. Don't have a whole lot to stand on. Apparently his troops are waving flags of surrender in the streets. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's what they the tell legends. us. That's, that's what Gregory tells us. <laughs> yep. And everything Gregory says is true. Exactly. So, uh, honestly, it looks pretty darn glowing to me. I, mean, I think so. The one thing is he got assassinated. Is not having better, yeah, not having better bodyguards is a pretty big one. But I don't know. It's wartime. What do you expect? Yeah. Shit happens. Yeah, like if he had died in battle, I don't. I, I'd you know mark against stability a little bit because you walked on the battlefield. But that that's just custom for the time. Yep. So this is really, you, no different. So what are you thinking here? Uh, I don't know. This feels at least like an eight, but I'd probably agree. more. Probably like a nine. I'd give a nine. I'm going to give almost like a ten. Eight. It's so close. It's very close. I'm going to go an eight. He made the right moves. It just, it was, his reign is a big what if. Like, yes, it was 14 years, but oh man, there could have been so much more that would have really pushed it to a nine or a 10 for me. Yeah, uh, it's. I I think definitely. Yeah, I'm willing to dock it down to an eight. Um, but main mainly on the premise that he did. He basically did like the first half of the work, which is the hard work. Don't get me wrong. Like this is of like what I think makes like the best rulers, or like at least in my book that I'm like, yeah, these people are aspirational. Are like yeah. the first half and the hardest half is bringing everybody together. Yeah. getting everything consolidated and then the easier half but the the cool the better the the cooler part is then they begin to make reforms 
they begin to make structural changes, you know, be it yeah. through infrastructure, uh, religion, uh, political, you know, tree structuring. Exactly. And yeah. Unfortunately, it was just kind of like he did the three quarters, the half of work that's like way more difficult. But uh, yeah, he didn't get a chance to do cool reforms. So eight. And eight for 16. Infamy. The only infamous thing I could find that he did is he allied himself with the pagans in the Civil War. That's it. Yeah. 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 Not really much to stand on there. Um, did Zero. I'm going to give a one just because that would have been seen a little bit infamous at the time. I suppose. All right. Zero to one for one. Religious passion. Uh, he worked alongside the Frankish church. To, no. He worked alongside the Frankish church to strengthen it. He actually developed some pretty positive relations with his saintly ex-stepmother Radigund and uh, kind of put... Uh, like really worked with her and his kingdom and things like that. He put money into restoring church buildings. He converted his wife kind of ex expected, but not the smallest of things. Uh, he, again, he just got cut short before he could really go for it, but he was already making the moves. He was, uh, he only had one wife pious that way. Yeah. At this day and really age. played the long game. He yeah. really did. I'm not sure on this so, one. Um, my first thought is like, I don't know, this feels like like a seven or an eight to me. Just like really I know he's not a he it just feels like he really walked the walk to me. Granted, yeah. you know, Gregory is gonna paint it that way. Helps when yeah. you're appointing religious people which he had to kind of who end up writing a lot about of work it. to make happen yeah what and who also so, end up writing about it like yeah so <laughs> it it is a big yeah what if like you know obviously it's a little bit biased so i'll bring it down to a seven but it feels like a a very much like yeah this guy's you know, got some good faith, you know, stuff going on. He's putting money into churches, right? Yep. Yep. Definitely. So, I don't know. It, it feels for being a wartime, for being a wartime king, he's getting an awful lot done. That is true. That is religion. very true. I did not so, think of that. Yeah. I'll ding it down to a seven and call it good. I'm going to ding it down to a six. Seven and six for 13. Ability. Uh, civil war is never a good thing for stability. He and his brother Kilbrick were constantly ravaging each other's lands. Despite having three main factions at court, though, he held them together. Despite all their differences and their different wants. So that's plus in the stability section is he actually held a divided court together. Yeah, it's hard to tell, but... Uh... I feel like that this is just one of those, um, I don't know, probably like a, like a, like a two, 
Or one. I'm giving him a one because Civil War just is not like what would have been happening to the peasants on the ground is just that's not stable. Yeah, our man really seeked out this war, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He really could have just like I I know that this isn't like, you know, not this is not uh, nice by modern sensibilities, but he really could have just ignored his wife. He could have, but that would have been against his entire imperial stature. And when you attack your imperial family, you have to respond in kind. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, again. He had to. It, uh, it felt and, like the thing could have blown over. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, one and a one for two. Royal Demise. All right, so his death is kind of insane when you take a closer look at it. While poison dip daggers are kind of a tiring trope to us now, this was not even close to common at this point. Gregory, who was, you know, there at the time, blames witchcraft because he didn't even know how who how it was possible. And I doubt these people would have ever heard of something like that. Uh and on top of that, he all but won the war, but his death dramatically reversed history. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, he won the battles, but he completely lost the war. And part of that's his royal demise. Kind of an insane little death that he had, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, it feels definitely like a pretty, like, dramatic, anticlimactic thing. Oh, I don't know, yeah, this feels definitely. like a four to me. Four out of I five. agree. I agree, a four. Four and a four for eight. I can see. Uh, for Dynasty Wives, he leaves behind his wife, Brunhilda, who will be made queen regent for their only son, Kildebert II. Brunhilda will get her own episode, so I'm not going to give her stuff any of his dynasty. He doesn't get any dynasty points because of her. Um, they also had two daughters in good who will most likely get her own episode when we resume the Visigoths in the post-Balti Dynasty series, and Clotocinda, who we don't know too much about, but she will probably be a side character in the wars to come. Um, at least when we deal with, I think, the Visigoths, she also is going to be a side character in that. Uh, the big thing is he began transforming his capital into an imperial city, the big thing is his life got cut short to see through it. I think he could would have made an even bigger legacy impact, but I think he was just killed too quickly that he could not make an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like he yeah didn't get what he needed to. No. Um this feels like a four. Like he got some stuff. A lot of groundwork laid. Yes. Again. Yes. And I guess also to add to legacy, it's kind of a negative thing, though, is um, like the war that he starts with Kilperic is going to be like kind of the beginning of the end for the Merovingians. It's it's going to deteriorate them pretty drastically. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, I'll do a f- I'll, I'm going to do it, too. Okay. All right, four and a two for six. 
All right, Scott, how many total points does uh, our boy have? All right, so for a my 24 to your 22, that makes for a total of 46. So pretty respectable, pretty all things not, considered. That's so bad. Do you think that 46 gives him enough to be the epicness to be crowned as high king in the Hall of Legends? Is he just good enough to be a minor king in the Hall of Mediocrity? Or was he so bad at his job that he should be burned at the stake? Uh, yeah, he's, he's he gets to go to the Hall of Mediocrity, unfortunately. I agree. He does not quite make the cut to high king. He's super, he's high king in my book. Like I, in my personal book. He's got a high king uh makings. Yes, exactly. But he is but but uh getting stabbed in the back by children does not a high king make. <laughs> no, it does not. Alrighty, so off to the hall of mediocrity you go. Uh, that'll bring us to the end of Sigibert the first. Uh, let us know what you thought of him. Do you agree with us placing him in the Hall of Mediocrity? Do you think we should have given him higher? Should we, we have been harsher on him? Uh, you can catch us on Messenger at Facebook or Instagram at Quest for Power or email us at questforpowerpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a five-star review on podchaser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend or family member is also hugely appreciated and matters to us just as much as a review. If you want to join the Lore Masters Guild, go on some side quest adventures with us. You can do so at patreon.com slash quest for power. And finally, our next session, we are going to review the villain of this episode, Kilperic the First. Boo. With that, the king is dead. Long live the king. 